Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. The sharing of stories is important to all of us. Nahue was a storyteller, and her grandchildren spoke of the stories she shared and how she taught her children to survive, educating them in the ways of Indigenous life. Let me tell you about Louis Bird. Louis is a Cree elder, born in 1934, at Winisk, a settlement six kilometres up the Winisk River from Hudson Bay. I walked the lowlands of Winisk in 1984, having been a crew member for Austin Airways, aboard a Hawker Siddeley 748 that flew from Pickle Lake to Winisk. Winisk was obliterated by flood in 1986, and the Winusk people were forced to relocate 30 kilometres inland to the community of Piwanak. Louis Bird is a storyteller, a historian, a musician, and a visual poet. He spent many years of his life listening to and retelling the stories and legends as told to him by his grandparents. He recorded an extensive library of audio tapes retelling these stories and legends. He considered the Hudson Bay lowlands to be rich in beauty and resources where one could live in abundance rather than hardship. Louis has a thorough knowledge of the Hudson Bay lowlands, having learned to hunt, fish, and trap on that land. His traditional education was interrupted for four years when he was forced to attend St. Anne's Indian Residential School at Fort Albany, considered one of the worst of those institutions. To call them schools is shameful. St. Anne started operating in 1902 on Albany Island of James Bay Treaty Region, Treaty 9, and was run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate of Grey Nuns, but later relocated to the north shore of the Albany River in 1932. The school closed in 1976. CBC News reported on, quote, the horrors of St. Anne's. On March 29, 2018, the OPP investigated the indecent assaults on 700 victims with 900 statements of the abuses and suspicious deaths between 1941 and 1972. The school had a homemade electric chair used for punishment and torture. Despite the findings of the OPP investigation, the narrative of the school, as referred to by the federal government, in 2008 to 2014, for compensation claims, did not include the evidence, nor the reports of the witness testimony. I recommend you read the CBC News report, which is available online, entitled, The Horrors of St. Anne's. St. Anne's did not form part of Louis Bird's legacy. Instead, he focused on the strength and wisdom of his culture and heritage, he spent his life sharing his knowledge. Louis was chief of, of his community during the 1970s. I own his books, The Spirit Lives in the Mind, 
and telling our stories, including contributions by Donna Sutherland, Roland Bohr, and Anne Lindsay. These books are valuable reads and important documents in understanding the past through the lens of Indigenous people, those whose story it is to tell. Louis is hopeful new generations of Omishkego will keep the practice of oral storytelling alive. Telling Our Stories was published by Toronto Press in 2011. In this book, Louis writes of the sharing of legends in the evenings, young children at the feet of the elders, often in a circle, perhaps around the fire. The stories were often comical in nature. I was reminded of this when I recently listened to the podcast of Connie Walker, Surviving St. Michael's. In one episode, she interviews survivors of the horrors of St. Michael's, a residential institution in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan, that didn't close until 1996. As the survivors spoke of the abuse, recounting the specific experiences, their voices held a chuckle. One might think it's strange to laugh about such things, but to the contrary, I believe laughter forms the armor of Indigenous people, their survival tool, the foundation of their resilience. The Mayo Clinic tells us that laughter is essential for good health and results in our body changing physically, and all of it is good. When we laugh, we take in more oxygen. Our brain releases endorphins, relieves our stress responses. Circulation is increased, so our muscles relax. Our immune system is improved. There is a relief from pain, to name just a few of the physical benefits. Indigenous people didn't need a scientific study to know the importance of laughter. They have been hardwired for thousands of years to hold tightly to humor, to let laughter ease their suffering and tell their stories. I've heard interviews on CBC Radio with Indigenous writers, and I recall their response to questions with laughter. Off the top of my head, I think of Eden Robinson and her huge contagious laugh, the author of Son of a Trickster, shortlisted for the Giller Prize in 2017. I think of Michelle Good and her novel Five Little Indians that won Canada Reads and the Governor General's Award. I think of Lee Miracle, who was one of the first Aboriginal writers to be published. Before her death in 2021, she was the most highly published First Nations writer in Canada. I think of Richard Wagamese, who wrote of serious loss and difficult subjects, but his easy laugh was always at the ready, histories told with a gentle tone. Thomas King and his sharp-witted writing. This isn't coincidence. Laughter is critical to everyone's well-being, and Indigenous people have an innate understanding of this. Louis explained that oral stories were actual histories, with five famous legends for teaching from long ago before contact. Julie Cruikshank, a Canadian anthropologist doing collaborative work with Indigenous peoples of the Yukon, wrote of oral history saying, Oral history has emphasis on landscape, mythology, everyday events, and the continuity between generations. End quote. From the book Voices from Hudson Bay, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2017. Louis wrote of women 
hunting small game, squirrels, weasels, rabbits, spruce, partridge, fish. He spoke of the difficulties of winter and how the bow and arrow didn't work well in the cold, and the stone axe couldn't cut frozen things with any ease. Survival training was essential, as well as tool-making, snowshoes, paddle, bow and arrow. Children camped out at night to study the stars, to learn how to read the sky to predict the weather. Spiritual teaching was started at a very young age, including the dream quest to learn to overcome the fear of being alone. The environment was extreme, and Indigenous people required a defense system and went into a partial dream state with spiritual training as a guide. Stories were meant to convey that everyone needs love and kindness, needs food, needs spirituality, needs to respect the environment and to understand that everything is living. Each tribe learned to adapt to their own environment, relying on the power of the mind to do extraordinary feats above the normal physical ability. The Cree achieve a mental state derived from fasting and pushing to the limits to survive in an environment that required nothing less. The dream quest was meant to allow the person to question everything he or she fears and then learn to overcome that fear. In dream quest, they learned about dancing and drumming, about the shaking tent. They relied on water visions to see the future and about medicines. The stories held all these components, stories told over and over, generation after generation, to educate. This makes me think of Tom Longboat. Longboat was born on Six Nations Reserve near Caledonia, Ontario, in 1887. His Indigenous name was Kogwagi, translating to everything. He escaped residential school by running away. He was a long-distance runner, an extraordinary runner. Longboat began racing in 1901 when he was 14 years old. After only two years of racing, Tom won the Boston Marathon in 1907 in a time that was 4 minutes and 59 seconds faster than the 10 previous winners. He collapsed in the 1907 Olympics Marathon along with several others, and a rematch was organized, which Longboat won. The reporting by the media of Longboat's skill and ease of running and his training methods was thick with racism, but he was beloved by running fans. Tom developed a strategy of training that was ahead of his time, it was said, but I prefer to think of it as relying on the lessons learned from his Indigenous history. He used alternate days of intense workouts followed by days of rest and less stressful training. He called on the teachings from his childhood that parallels Louis Bird's accounts of the power of mind regarding survival. Indigenous spiritual belief gave those who committed to its practice the ability to control their bodies to do extraordinary things. These belief systems dwelled in the core of Indigenous peoples, allowing them to survive and thrive in harsh conditions. Olympic runner Bruce Kidd wrote the story Tom Longboat, first published in 1980 by Fitzhenry and Whiteside, telling the truth of the racial slant the media had used in their writings of Tom. Quote, he was the greatest runner Canada has ever known, who struggled against the vicious racism of his age. End quote. Kidd retold the life of Longboat with truth and admiration. 
quote, Tom Longboat was determined to control his own life, even if it meant standing up to and then breaking away from the white sports promoters who tried to manage his career, end quote. Toronto Mayor Emerson Coatsworth promised Longboat, after his 1907 Boston Marathon win, $500 for his education. The promise was not paid until 1985, 36 years after Tom's death, when Kidd exposed the truth and had the city honour the $500 promise, now at $10,000 in present value, and awarded the sum to Longboat's heirs. William Brown wrote a thesis for his master's at Concordia University in 2009, remembering Tom Longboat. In his writing, Brown references Shannon Lautet, a Métis runner from Saskatchewan who ran the Boston Marathon in 2007, quote, as a way of thanking Tom Longboat for the doors he opened for us as human beings. He gave us a different reference point for achievement. End quote. Best in the world. In his thesis, Brown exposed how Longboat was regularly ridiculed and falsely represented in news reports. CanadaHistory.ca writes, At age 23, Longboat had defeated every great runner in the world at least once. When Tom was finished running professionally, he took up a job as a street cleaner in the city of Toronto, a job that allowed him to work outside and use his body, sweeping leaves and debris, working with horses, a job that made him happy. A rubbish man, the media called him. I think of those individuals we hold up as celebrities now, as role models, a list that includes names whose only pursuit is wealth and social recognition, who do little or nothing to better this world. Tom Longboat is a much better choice. Louis Bird explained there was no need for a legal system. Elders created an unwritten code of ethics, and those who did not follow the code were forced from the tribe and required to survive alone. The stories taught children to respect animals, to respect the environment, to clean up a camp upon departure, and not to alter the land or leave a blemish on it. Stories of first contact made by Europeans are many and varied. Oral stories, Louis Bird reminds us, are a means of passing information from generation to generation, the same stories told again and again. Stories have different names depending upon the story's purpose. In terms of first contact, if we look first to the European side of the story, in 1611, Henry Hudson wintered in the southerly area of James Bay. All but one crew member survived the winter. Abacook Prickett, was the navigator aboard the Discovery and one of the mutineers. He wrote a detailed account of the experience, excerpts of which are available online, but I found it very difficult to decipher. You know, the language was so totally different. He wrote that in October of 1610, Hudson's men pulled the Discovery ashore near Rupert River and, quote, by November 10th were frozen in. They survived the winter by eating anything they could forage for, including moss and, quote, even the frog was not spared, end quote. As the ice began to break up, a lone savage, wrote Prickett, came to the grounded ship. A trade was attempted, giving the man a knife, a looking glass, and buttons. 
The man went away and came again bringing two deer skins and two beaver pelts, and Hudson gave him a hatchet. They expected the man would come again, but he didn't. The ice was out of the bay, and Hudson went in the shallop to seek out these people and hopefully procure some meat from them. Prickett wrote that instead the people set the woods on fire. The European stories have significant differences from those of the Omishkego people, reminding us that we all remember or notice different things and different details because of our differing perspectives. Prickett's writing of the natives setting the woods on fire when Hudson's men drew near was interpreted by some as an aggression, a means of denying contact. But Omishkego used what we now call controlled burns in the spring to clear away the underbrush for the development of meadows for grazing game and to make the hunt easier. This example, as provided in Mr. Bird's book, goes back to the question of who is telling the story and for what purpose. The discovery headed back to England, but Hudson's crew mutinied on June 24, 1611, setting Hudson, his 17-year-old son, and seven crew members adrift in the shallop, somewhere near Charlton Island. Those aboard the Discovery on the return trip clashed with the Inuit at Diggs Island in the northern end of Hudson Bay. Four of the crew were killed. Only eight of the original crew survived to see England. They were eventually tried not for mutiny but for murder. The court determined that to turn experienced sailors out on the sea did not constitute murder, and they were all acquitted. James Bay is named for and by Thomas James, a Welsh navigator, explorer, and author, according to the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. James travelled to Hudson Bay and James Bay in 1631, hoping to find the Northwest Passage and to sail to Japan with the financial support of Bristol merchants. He set sail on May 3, 1631, aboard the Henrietta Maria with a crew of 22, no man on his crew had ever been part of a northern voyage. Was it a good idea to ensure his authority would not be usurped? The proof is in the pudding. James thought he could find a route to the St. Lawrence River through James Bay. His expedition was, and I quote from the Canadian biography, the first deliberate wintering of a European party in the Canadian North, end quote. He and his crew wintered on Charlton Island in 1631, the winter over 1632, and he wrote extensively of the experience. Charlton Island is almost at the bottom of James Bay, James naming the island after Prince Charles. James arrived in Hudson Bay mid-July of 1631, finding only traces of salvages, he wrote. Yes, the word had an L in it. He reached the mouth of a large river in James Bay, which he named New Severn. They built cabins on the island and deliberately sunk the ship to prevent her from being swept away. With no experience in survival in this harsh climate, they suffered, and four men died. They were able to refloat the ship in the spring, and after much struggle were able to move her into deep water. James decided the mosquitoes were worse than the winter's cold. He returned to England after not finding Japan, for whom he carried letters from His Majesty. He did not find the Northwest Passage, and he did not encounter any salvages. (laughs) 
Now we turn to the oral stories from the Omushkego. One of the most significant stories when we are speaking of contact with the Europeans is about an elderly man. The tribe was moving on in search of food, and as was custom, the elderly decided when they could no longer move with the group and would stay behind to meet their ultimate death. They knew when their time was up. This man was blind and frail. He was made comfortable and goodbyes were exchanged and the group left him behind. He could not explain how or why, but food and water kept appearing beside him where he would find it, and as such, he survived the winter, and in the spring crawled out of the wooden structure he had been left in. He followed the sound of running water that took him to a nearby creek. He sat in the sun and began to sing. A young man hunting on his own passed by and heard the old man. He was singing, I cannot have anything from these, we me mistigosiwak. That word refers to trees with white bark whose tops wave in the wind. The young man remembered that word. When people arrived in Omashkego territory, they were called we mistigosiwak. Why? Elders broke down the word, and it meant people who travel with the wind in a wooden boat. The old man was saying, these people will be here with no help to us at all. That story was told for generations, long before European contact. Ships often ran aground in Hudson Bay due to the shoals and sandbars at the mouth of the rivers. Andrew Graham spoke to this in his notes, filed with the Hudson's Bay Company archives, in the Manitoba archives as E.2-12, regarding the hazards of the rivers with the exception of the Churchill, quote, on account of the numbers of sand shoals at the mouth, no vessels can proceed any great distance up them, end quote. Louis says his people had heard the voices calling out, heave ho, heave ho, not understanding the meaning of the words, but it formed part of the prediction, as Louis calls it, that strangers would come. They had heard the boom of thunder sticks between the ships when they fired at each other, most likely the French and the English, always in skirmishes. In one of the stories, Louis says the Omishkego came upon a ship run aground on the north side of Akimiski Island of James Bay, close to the west shore of Hudson Bay. Charlton Island is south of Akimiski and a much smaller island but in the same general area but the English writers make no mention of meeting any locals at that time. In Louis's story, the Omishkego helped to free the ship after one of them went forward to see if it was safe. He advised the captain of the ship to wait for the full moon, which brought high tides. There was an exchange of tools and the like after they helped release the ship from the shoal. This story also parallels the account from Abacook Prickett, and the single man coming forward to meet Henry Hudson. So perhaps these stories were combined into one for ease of telling, for the greater lesson of how contact came about. Louis spoke of stories after contact, stories telling how Europeans immediately thought of Indigenous people as less intelligent, despite the fact they had survived for thousands of years. The Cree were helpful to the Europeans, sharing their skills with the newcomers, there was little or no sense of hierarchy within Indigenous culture. Those with sharpened skills were listened to. The good hunters taught others to hunt, but not with a sense of superiority. Next time we'll look more closely 
at Victor Litwin's original people of the Great Swampy Land. Hi hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi hi for listening. Bye for now.